0: If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Let me read those and then we'll begin. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when He heard that Lazarus was ill. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to kill you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin. Said to his fellow disciples. Let us go. That we may die with him. Let's pray together. Father God this is your word. To your people. I ask that. You might, through your Son Jesus Christ, display your glory, even this morning, anew. That we might see Him and know Him. And by knowing Him, we might see you and know you. Please send your Spirit on this place. Remove anything that would be a hindrance to the preaching of your Word. And, O God, please take this instrument and use me, hide me, and proclaim your glory through me. It is in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. The glory of God is central theme to the Scriptures. The Old Testament is filled with statements about the glory of God. Listen to just a few of the statements that God makes about His glory and There's about God's glory from the Old Testament. Just listen to these. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Tell of His salvation day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and He is to be held in awe above all God's. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. That's the words of David recorded for us in a song that he sang at the dedication of the tent of meeting again. And he sang this song about taking the glory of God. To the nations, this is found in First Chronicles sixteen twenty three through twenty seven. Psalm nineteen one, one of the most famous psalms, says the heavens, the heavens declare the glory of God. I mean, we're blessed to worship in a in a facility where we can see the heavens, and it's all right if you look at them. The heavens. Declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Psalm 24, 7-10 through 10 says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory might come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of Glory may come in. Who is this King of Glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of Glory. Be silent. Psalm seventy-two, eighteen through nineteen says, Blessed the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And this concludes the testimony of David. That's what Psalm 72 says. David died saying, blessed be the name of the Lord and may his glory, may his glory be over all the earth. That was the swan song of the great king of Israel, David. The glory of God. Psalm 96, verses 1 through 3 says, "O oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. That's the motivation for missions to tell of His glory among all the nations. Psalm 108, 5-6 Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let Your glory be all over all the earth that Your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by Your right hand and answer me. And Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, as David already read to us in worship, listen to this. In Isaiah 6, 1-3, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name i believe that if you want a definition of glory it is glory is his goodness and his name i know there's deeper theological explanations for the glory of god and i know it is presented as a bright and shining light But the simplest way, if you want to teach your six-year-old about the glory of God, the simplest thing to say is the glory of God is His name because His name is His person. He is glorious because He is God. Not because He's done anything for me. Not because He's blessed me. Not because He's been kind to my family. Not because He's rained down blessings for generations on this nation But because He is God. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make my goodness pass by you. And I will make my name be before you. And He answered the question. He answered him with yes, I'll show you my glory. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy but... From this small selection of scriptures that fill the Old Testament. We see that God's glory is a major concern of the scripture. But we are not left without a witness to the importance of God's glory in the New Testament. Unless you get the idea that that's an Old Testament thing. Which by the way is enough because the Old Testament is God's word to his people. It's our, our word. But he didn't just stop in the Old Testament about his glory. He continued into the New Testament. Look at a few of these passages, Acts 7, 1 through 3. Stephen preaches the, an evangelical message, an evangelical presentation to the high priest in the court. And he says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory. Do you see why I said the easiest way to explain what the glory of God is, is to say it is his name. It is who he is. That's the easiest way to explain it. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. The glory of God is, is in focus. First Corinthians ten thirty one. Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. In that short sentence, Paul captures the meaning of your life if you are a believer. It is for the glory of God. Ephesians 1, 11-12 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. When you wonder... Why has He saved me? The answer is, for His glory He has saved you. That's why I said Psalm 96 is the motivation for every world missionary endeavor. That the glory of God might fill the earth. That's why we go on mission. It's not to see individual people saved. That's a byproduct of why we go. We go that the nations might see our God and know His name. He is the God of glory. That's why we go. That's why he saves people so that it might be to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 3:14 through 19. Paul says, "For this very reason I bow my knee before the Father, for whom from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named." That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And he closes that statement by referring to the top statement, which is the glory of God. We are filled with the glory of God when we are filled with His Spirit. And that's why our faces should have a countenance that displays His glory to the world. That's why when the lost world looks at you, they should say there's something different and dazzling about that man, that woman, that child. They are different because of the glory of God. They should say that person is strange, otherworldly, different. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, the writer of Hebrews says long ago. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What name is it that he has inherited? The King of glory, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He has inherited the name, the title, the Lord our God is a God of glory. That's the title he's inherited in heaven, and he is the representation of the glory of God. How could a person read the scriptures faithfully and not walk away with the thought that God's glory is an all-consuming reality? How can they read the scripture and not gain this? It's not a how-to book. The Bible's not a book about me or about you or about the nations or about this county or about this church. Or about missions, the Bible is a book about the glory of God. That's what the Bible's all about. And that's what we are to be all about, is the glory of God. And so whether you live in Calhoun County or you live in Papua New Guinea, or whether you live in Volgograd, Russia, or whether you live in China, you live and you have being so that you might display the glory of God. I want to say that we should view our life and our church and our sickness and our joy and our poverty and our wealth and our living and our dying with one great and singular aim, namely the glory of God alone. Today, we're looking at the introduction to one of the greatest miracles ever performed in the life of Jesus Christ. He's going to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. But he's assuring his disciples and us that Lazarus and Lazarus' family and his friends are not the ultimate purpose of this miracle. That's what he's telling us in this introduction. In John eleven four. 4, look in your text. It says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. What? It The sickness is for the glory of God. Don't get sidetracked with Lazarus, with Mary, with Martha, with what you feel, what they felt. Think about. Contemplate. Focus on the glory of God. That's what Jesus is saying in this introduction. Our aim in this passage is not to get caught up in the amazing resurrection of a man who is dead for four days. Though that is amazing and praiseworthy. That will not cause men... Listen, the resurrection of the dead will not cause men and women. The resurrection of Lazarus will not cause people to give their lives to the spreading of the gospel. It will not cause the church to weep for the lost and preach the gospel to our neighbors. The resurrection of Lazarus will not strengthen you and your family in a time of loss, from sickness, or from death. Only the glory of our magnificent Father in heaven and the glory of His Son will cause us to live and die daily for the cause of spreading the glory of God throughout all the nations to the ends of the earth. That's all that will inspire us to give our lives is the glory of God. If we exist as Grace Fellowship for a hundred years by God's grace, but we do not listen to this. If we exist for a hundred years by the grace of God, and we do not spread, cause, see the nations reached with the message of the glory of God, then we have failed. If 20 years from now, everybody is still sitting in these pews, we, the people of Grace Fellowship, Not God. We have failed. Somebody told me one time, well, everybody can't go on missions because if they did, then nobody could send them. I'd like to see the problem exist. I'd like to see one church that says, sign on the door, let it be our church at the front that says, sorry, we no longer meet at Grace Fellowship because everybody who was here Went to spread the glory of God to the nations. Pray for us. Join us. That's what I want. I'm not satisfied to die having seen your face for 20 or 30 years. You don't like me that much. I don't like you that much. Go. Go. Oh. Oh God. I pray that we can just catch a glimpse of your glory so that we might know you and make you known. The glory of God is something that we can speak about easily when times are prosperous. But that's not the setting of our passage. It's not the setting of our passage. That's not the setting of our day in America, is it? I almost laugh out loud when I hear somebody say we're the most wealthy nation in the world or in world history. Almost laugh out loud. We're the only nation so self consumed as to spend ourselves out of existence. We're not wealthy. We're poor. We're bankrupt. And the main reason is not the stock market. The main reason is that we do not, as a people, possess a vision of the glory of God, and we are not consumed with Him. And so we are bankrupt. Maybe nobody's told you that. Maybe I shouldn't say it, but I don't think I'm powerful enough to affect the market anyway. And People much powerful than me can't turn it around, so what's one little preacher in Cowan County going to do? But tell you the truth we're bankrupt. We're bankrupt, more importantly, we're bankrupt morally because we have lost a vision of God and His glory. The setting of this passage and the setting of our church and the setting of your life is not prosperous, it's failing. Lazarus is sick. Mary and Martha are desperate for the Lord to help. Let me ask you this question as we get started into this passage. Do you seek the glory of God when things are not prosperous? And I'll give you an answer so you don't have to wait till the end. If you don't seek the glory of God when times are bad, you do not seek the glory of God ever. What you seek is his blessing, not his glory. You say, times are bad. They are getting worse. I'm afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Repent and live a life centered on God's glory. And let the world fall apart around you for the glory of God if that's so what he so wills when your health goes bad when you're out of work when your marriage is on the rocks and when you don't think you're going to survive if God's glory is not the aim of your life it never is the aim of your life and today i want us to look at an introduction to a chapter of the Bible that's dedicated to the glory of God. And the title of this message is God's All-Consuming Glory. Subtitle: The Brightness of God's Glory Against the Dark Backdrop of Death. We get the prettiest pictures of God's glory against the darkest and bleakest backgrounds. Let's look at the passage together. First of all, we can see in this passage that God will gain his glory even in the face of sickness and death. There has been sickness in this church for over a year now. People have died. Babies have died. We've suffered with cancer. we suffered with tumors. We've suffered with general just afflictions. Our family members have suffered. And if you don't leave with anything else beside what I said in the introduction, leave with this. God will gain His glory in the face of sickness and death. Not in spite of it. He will gain it often because of it. Now, we see in the first verse that Jesus loved Mary and Martha. Look what it says. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Jesus loved them. Jesus loved them and yet they died. Lazarus is sick and he's dying. What about these three individuals that are side characters, though we don't want to get caught up in it? We do need to know a little about them, don't we? Martha is the first one noticed, uh, mentioned, or, or the last one mentioned, and so I'll mention her first. She's the most famous of the three. Martha in Luke 10 thirty eight through forty two is the first time we see her, and look what it says. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she said and, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, bold facing in my mind for Martha, but Martha was distracted with much serving. She had one person to take care of, Jesus. And look what she says. It's odd to me. If Jesus is the focus of Martha's life, what she says is totally out of place. Yet I can be there, and I think you can be there daily. Look what it says. Or listen to what it says. And she went up to him, Martha did, because she's distracted. She's trying to serve. She's mad as a old wet hen, as my granddad would say. She said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone. Tell her then to help me. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious about a lot of things. But there's only one thing that is required and Mary has chosen that and it's not going to be taken away from her. Think about how absurd her request is. Mary, Jesus is supposed to be the focus, Right? And yet, Martha wants Mary to leave Jesus by himself. Now, this isn't the age of TV. It's not like she's she's saying, Lord, just turn on the TV there, watch the nightly news. We're going to go cook some dinner. She's going to leave him by himself. He's come all this way to visit, and she wants to leave him in that outer room just kind of twiddling his thumbs, doing nothing. Her focus is not Jesus. Her focus is the many things. And her focus is herself. Look what she says in that statement Lord, do you not care that my sister left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. She's not worried about Mary. She's not worried about Jesus. She's worried about Martha. She's consumed. Now, John 12, 1 through 2 also tells us a little bit about Martha. And look what it says. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. The instance we're looking at right now. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. What has changed about Martha? What has changed? She went from being worried about many things and serving out of her own selfish desires to just being one who served. She seems to be at rest when we find her in John 12. What's changed? She saw the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of the Father, when he resurrected Lazarus from the dead. And it changed her. She said I've been serving myself. Now I'll serve this glorious God. Didn't bother it at all. Everybody's laying around while she's fixing the food. I kind of envision her singing a hymn, reciting some scripture, listening like your wife or your mother or your grandmother did in the kitchen. You know, they got there. You don't think they can hear you, so you talk about them a little bit, and they say, I hear you in there. That's kind of how I picture Martha serving in John 12. One ear to the door. I don't want to miss anything Jesus is saying. Boy, this is going to be great. Let's get out there and get sit with Him and focus on Jesus. That's where she is in John 12. And what changed? She saw the glory of God. And it changed her. Mary, in Luke 10, 38-42, it says Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to His teaching. And she chose the good portion and Jesus said it won't be taken away from her. In John 11... 31 through 32. In verse 32, she comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. That is an ultimate expression of faith. How did she get that expression of faith? Because she was at his feet. As a matter of fact, she's at his feet every time she's mentioned in the text. In Luke chapter 10, she's at his feet. Listening to his teaching. In John chapter 11. She runs out to where he is. And falls at his feet. And says Lord if you'd been here. My brother would not have died. And in John chapter 12. We find Mary at Jesus feet. In. The same village. And look what she's doing. She's anointing his feet with oil and wiping his feet with her hair. And Jesus tells us in that passage it's because she believes he's going to die. She's doing this as a burial dirge for me to prepare me for my death. She's an example to us of someone who saw the glory of God and was absolutely focused on it and nothing else. As a matter of fact, there's an equivalent of about 300 days worth of wages that she poured out on his feet that day. Almost a full year of work. Lazarus, finally, is mentioned in all the texts that we've looked at with Martha and with Mary. And something stands out to me about him. I don't know if you caught it. Lazarus is always mentioned, but he's never talking. Lazarus never speaks in the Scripture. I don't think he was mute. I think he could talk. That's not the issue. He never spoke a word, and yet he led thousands of people to Christ. Because his life was a living, walking, breathing picture of the glory of God. This unassuming brother of two busybody sisters (laughs) reaches more than anybody. Because God took his life. And ransomed it for his glory. As a matter of fact, to the extent that the disciples, I mean that the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. Because so many people were coming to Christ because of him. Just the presence of Lazarus, people started repenting of their sin and believing in Jesus. That's a life consumed by the glory of God. Jesus... We've looked at these three characters and now we turn to Jesus who identifies the glory of God as the purpose behind Lazarus' sickness and his death. look what he says. This sickness will not end in death. Lead to death. It's also, could the idea is end. This illness will not end in death. Final death. It finally won't be death. That's not what this is about. He's telling them, It's not about death. It's about what? Look what it says in the text. It is for the glory of God. The purpose of this is the glory of God. Death is not the end for Lazarus. And it's not the end for those whose lives are fixed on the glory of God. Death is not the end for the believer. Death is the beginning of living in the reality face to face with the glory of God, Jesus Christ. Why do you fear death so much? Why are you so afraid to die? Why am I so afraid to die? Honestly, because we love this world far too much and we don't seek his glory as our ultimate purpose. If we did, dying would be a beginning, not an ending. Think of the greatest men in the history of the church and their attitude towards death. For Paul, trials and death were simply preparing for him a great weight of glory which is beyond comparison to these struggles. Death is the ultimate struggle. And Paul says, that's going to ultimately prepare for me a great glory. We're told that John the Apostle, after being on Patmos, boiled in oil probably, and he would not die. Even after all of that, when he was released from his captivity on Patmos, went back into Asia Minor and died preaching the glory of Christ. All of the apostles martyred for the glory of God. And we go down through church history and we think of great men and great women who have lived their life focused on the glory of God, and death is no hurdle to them. It's no, it's no real problem. They see right past it. They live by the example given us in Hebrews 11. Where Abraham and Moses suffered with the people of God. Having fixed their eyes on the city which has no foundation on the earth. And having fixed their eyes, Moses, on the Christ. And counting it worthy to suffer with him rather than enjoy the pleasures of Egypt. The glory of God is the focus. I think of men like David Livingstone. Who went into the heart of Africa and died? I think of men like Adoniram Judson, who went into Burma when no one else would go, and and gave up his life so that those people might know the glory of God. I think of men like David Sitton and Rod Connor who since the 1970s have taken God's message of His glory to the tribes on a little remote place known, known as Papua New Guinea, and they've been willing to even die. I think about them, and I wonder, what is it that causes them to be so resolute in the face of death and in the face of sickness? And it's the same reason... That Christ gave in the text. This sickness is not about death. It is for the glory of God. And so they made that their aim. They said. It's not about me living or dying. It's not about me being healthy and wealthy and wise. It's about the glory of God at all costs. It's about the glory of God. And nothing else. Secondly God Sovereign will and timing frees us to walk with great confidence ever, even in the face of danger. In verses 5 through 10, and especially in verse 9, Jesus focuses in on living by the will of God. Look what it says. Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus is speaking about the sovereign will of God. In the Hebrew world, there were 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness. They didn't have daylight savings time. They adjusted their time. Some hours were longer and some hours were shorter all year long. Isn't that kind of weird? I mean, there wasn't always 60 minutes in in an hour for a Jewish person. Because the day was 12 hours, regardless of the clock of the earth. And what Jesus is saying is, as long as we walk according to the light of the will of God, we're not going to stumble. But at the moment of darkness, we will stumble. That's what he's saying. Easy to say. What what was he answering? Their fear that if we go back to Judea, we're going to die, right? And Jesus is saying, I can't die. I can't die. It's daytime. It's not time for me to die, in other words. Listen, some of you are not going on missions. Some of you are not moving your location in this county to other parts of the county that are less desirable and more dangerous because you're afraid if you do, you're going to die. Can I let you in on a secret? You're going to die at the moment that God has preordained and determined before the foundation of the world. Not one moment sooner, not one moment later. You cannot add to the length of your life by living in a gated community away from crime. You can't add to your life by living in the United States and having insurance so that all of your ills can be treated. And I'm not against insurance, and I'm not against living in the United States. I'm simply saying, you're going to die. The day is going to end. And then you're going to enter darkness, and death will stumble you. There's not anything you can do about it. And you're not going to die before or after God has determined. So you say, we have a member who was faced with this question by some co workers. Why would you let your children go into a ex country where they're going to be in danger? And I say to them, Go. Go and have no concern. Zero concern about death because you might stay here and live for yourself and die driving to the movie theater so which is better to have given it all and die spreading the glory of God or to have given nothing and die driving to the movie theater what's better listen You say, that's reckless. No, it's not reckless. We need balance. No, we don't. We need to come face to face with the reality that God is sovereign and you cannot die until He has determined it. Neither will you live past the moment He has determined. So what is my challenge to you as I end this message? Having preached on the glory of God, having talked with you, about the fact that God is sovereignly moving you. You can't die until he has determined it. What is my challenge to you? My challenge to believers in this room is to seriously and earnestly fast and pray about leaving this place. about in six months not being in this place ever again. My challenge to you is to die to the American dream and die to this world and give your life daily to nations for the glory of God, not for people. Listen, if all you do is go on mission for the people, you will come home defeated and discouraged But if you leave for the glory of God, you can't come home except by success. That's how you come home. So my challenge to you without reservation is pray and fast that God would send you from this place. Believer and lost person, my invitation to you is if you're looking for a cause to live and die for you won't find one like this anywhere else people are living and dying for Tuesday and an election and my heart breaks Because I'm thinking that cause is not worth living and dying for. People are living and dying for the cause of being millionaires. Or multi-millionaires. People are living and dying and risking it all to feed the poor. And to give of themselves to their fellow man. And none of those causes are worth living and dying for. This is the cause that demands our all. And so if you are lost in this place, and you say, that guy is a little strange, but something in your heart says that message, though it is strange, must have a valid truth, then call on him And spend the rest of your days, whatever they are, determined by His will, for His glory. On mission to see the nations proclaim His name. And by doing that, we say, lift up your heads, O gates. By doing that, we say, open the door. The salvation of God is at hand. The salvation of God is is at hand. Let's pray. Father, as we close this time in your word, thinking and contemplating about the great...